Let's pray. Oh, loving God, we come before you right now thanking you that you are unshakable in your love for us. May your grace pour upon us so that we might be agents of your grace to this broken and hurting world. Use what has been presented to help this church be a place that loves this world and invites all to discover life. In your son Jesus, in name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Praise band, awesome stuff. Thank you very, 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 very much. Uh, Boy Scout Troop 109, thank you, and PAC 109, thank you all for being here as we uh, honor Boy Scout Sunday. And I guess I ought to introduce myself. I've been away for this week, but I'm um, glad to be back. I'm Ed Glaze, uh, one of the pastors here at Moon United Methodist Church. And we start out today asking the question, what difference in the world are you making? What difference in the world are you making? How's grace working in your life to change the world? We conclude our series of sermons today entitled A Grace Charged World, where we have been talking about this notion of who, of who we are as United Methodists, sharing our preeminent theology, and that's the doctrine of God's grace. A grace that is there before we're ever aware of it. As we said, we experience it proveniently. That's that fancy word that means it's a grace that goes before us. As a lot of y'all that were here that first Sunday, I preached about this. You love the illustration that grates are like grits. It just comes with a meal in a, a good southern restaurant. Grace just comes with life. We, we do nothing to earn it. We do nothing uh, to have it with us. It is there because we live in a grace-charged world. And then we step through uh, the portal, the door of grace as we uh, accept Christ into our lives and enter into this relationship with God through Christ that does not let us stay in the same place. Grace doesn't just stay there statically in our hearts. We, like any friendship, we grow in grace. And because we grow in grace, it makes a difference in our lives and then because of that, we make a difference in the world. And one way we know that we're growing in grace is we learn to love what God loves. And what's God love? What's John 3.16 say? For God so loved what? The world. The world. As we'll talk about next week as we start a sermon series on, entitled The Humility of Jesus. That's our Lenten journey. And we'll talk about next week that in God's humility, God created everything and loves it. But particularly, God likes the folks that walk around on two feet or who are human beings. You and I, we are created in God's image. God most particularly loves people, especially those who are broken and who are hurting. So as we grow in this grace, we grow to love what God loves. And that brings us to our scripture passage for this morning which comes from the book of 1 John, the fourth chapter, starting with verse 19. John writes, We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, 
For those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And for us to say that we love God, we've got to love people. Love has to grow within us. This grace has to work within our hearts, within our lives, so that through us, God's love is made known. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, that grace flows through us to make a difference in the world, not just something we hold on to, not something that we absorb and get this nice, warm feeling. It is something that makes a difference in the world. The early church realized this. As we read in the book of Acts, when the church is established, we read there in the second and the fourth chapter that the believers shared everything in common together. They saw that no one in their fellowship was in need whatsoever, that everybody within the life of the church felt cared for, that they felt loved. Did they do this perfectly? No. That's what they attempted, to have this fellowship of love. And then it expanded out into the world around them. It was a dynamic force following after the two commandments of Christ to love God and love neighbor. They went out and spread the good news of God's love throughout the whole world. They lived out what Jesus taught in Matthew 25 to visit the sick and the imprisoned, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry. These folks, they showed Love and grace worked in their lives and in the world. They showed love to each other and love to the world, a love that changed the world around them. We see in history that when Christianity, Christianity was formed, that started with at the most 72 people. But in the mere short span of 350 years. Now, it sounds like a long time, but in history, that's not really a long time. In 350 years, 56% of the people who lived in the Roman Empire claimed Christianity as their faith. 56% of the people in a mere span of 350 years where the Christians were being persecuted, being abused, being tortured. And here is what historian Rodney Stark says. I don't often read quotes to you. I try to memorize them, but this one is so good and so powerful that I wanted to make sure I got every word right. Here's what it says. Christians revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homeless, impoverished, and strangers, Christians offered an immediately basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christians provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent and ethnic strife, Christians offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemic fires and earthquakes, Christians offered effective nursing services. Thus, the early Christians ministered as transformative movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the Roman Empire. That's what it means to live, love, and serve with Jesus. What we claim is our vision. They made a difference, you see, in the world around them. It changed everything. It was a love that 
Others tried to imitate the Emperor Julian, trying to reestablish paganism as a, the main religion of the empire, said, we got to imitate these Christians. We got to go out and help the poor and embrace those who are weak. And well, of course, it failed because their ethic was based not on a God of love, but on the pagan gods of the time. Christians, you see, made a difference in the world and changed everything. But over time, as Christianity grew and became the religion of the empire, the impetus to help the poor waned. And, well, what became the impetus of the time then was to chase after power and authority, chase after the, the things of the world. And though there have always been Christians, always been people who are followers of Christ that reached out to the poor, that, that saw the brokenness of the world and, and try to make a difference, here became the belief system of Christianity that if you're poor, if you're in a bad place, if you're hurting, that is God's will for your life. That's your place in life. That is your station where you are supposed to be. And the impetus then to help was put it aside because, well, obviously that's where God has you for a reason. Well, and it was such similar beliefs that the Methodist movement arose in the 17th century in the British Isles. John Wesley and the early Methodists had a period that was of great turmoil there in England. The earlier century, the, 16th, or the 17th century, religious civil war broke out all over England. There was a great a lapse in morality. One in six women who lived in England walked the streets to make a living. Alcoholism was rampant. Religious life was a mere formality. You had to go to church once a month or be fined. But there was, can you imagine that? <laughs> I'm taking roll and I'm sending the IRS to get the money. Yeah, yeah. so there was no true vitality, new no real pietism, no real love pouring forth for those who went to church. It was something that they were forced to do. And as I said, morality was at a low ebb. The two most popular sports were bull baiting and bear baiting, where, well, you can imagine what happened. They'd take a captured animal and sick the dogs on them. Of course, the most popular sports to watch was a public hanging, but that really wasn't exactly a sport. You can tell that the nation was at a low ebb and poverty was rampant. It was a time of great transition. The enclosure laws that forced the people who had been on the land for generations, sent them into the cities to work at these new jobs called textile mills for little or no money. And they found themselves destitute, without family, without a community. And in the midst of this, Methodism your forebears in faith arose. Of course, we know about John Wesley's warm heart. Patty spoke about it beautifully uh, last week. His heart was strangely warmed, and, and he, he got this impetus to go out to preach to the commoners. He started in the coal fields in Bristol, proclaiming to these people, these folks of lower station, lower class, these people who the upper class called vermin, he said to them, you are worthy of God's love because God loves you. God cares for you. God has a place for you. And they responded. 
But not only did they preach to these commoners, the Methodists went and to know them, to visit them, to talk to them, to get involved in their lives. In a time when the poor weren't cared for, the Methodists went and cared for the poor. When those who were sick weren't tended to, the Methodists went to be with them. When that person was taken to that public hanging, it was oftentimes a Methodist preacher that rode in the cart with that person. While they were yelling at him, my oh my, he is going to die. He was saying, you have life in Christ. See, Methodists were required to go and be with the poor. Not just go and hand out things, but to get to know them. And this was shocking, y'all. When the Lady Countess of Huntington, for whom Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama is named, was being chided by one of the other aristocrats, this aristocrat said to her, Madam, it is below your station and below your high breeding to do such things. That's how radical Methodism was. That's how radical Methodism was. And it changed the hearts of the people. Ted Jennings in his work about the early Methodists says this to us today. When we visit the outcast, when we go and participate in the lives of the marginalized, we're inviting transformation into our lives into our hearts, into our perspective, being transformed into this God who seeks to change the world in mercy and justice. Radical stuff these Methodists preached and lived. They uh, gathered together in societies. They couldn't call them churches, but that's what they were. And they supported one another in smaller settings called bands and classes because this is hard work and also they wanted to hold each other lovingly accountable to their discipline of living a holy life, which Patty talked about some last week, doing the things that kept them connected to Jesus, to grow in their friendship to Jesus, to grow in their, their grace in, in Jesus. And they made a difference, you see, not only in the communities around them, but in the lives of the people. Lots of poor folks wanted to become Methodists, and so they did. And, and not any Methodists were sent to workhouses. What you might remember, if you all remember Charles Dickens, remember the workhouses where folks that couldn't afford to pay their bills were sent to go and die of starvation, overwork, or despair. Methodists, you see, formed credit unions where the folks contributed money to the common pool and when someone was in need, they lent it to the person to pay back when they got back on their feet. Methodists taught each other to read. John Wesley was concerned that lots of folks didn't have access directly to the scriptures, so he started Sabbath school so folks could learn to read. If any of y'all in Sunday school, this is where it started. Of course, it's a forerunner of the famous Sunday school movement by Robert Rakes, who started these schools to help impoverished children not only learn to read, but also hear the gospel. And the radical notion that women were to be included came forth through the Methodist movement. Forty-seven of the 66 
class meetings in the famous Fetterlane Society were led by women. Mary Bassaquit said, you know, we can preach, and John Wesley said this, but Paul said women shouldn't speak in church. And then she said, but didn't the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11 that women should pray and prophesy in church? Did they do that with their mouth closed? And John Wesley said, no, I guess you're right. So radically, women preached. Amen. <laughs> Says a woman preacher over there. Now, when anything comes institutionalized, some of the radicalism wears off, and it wasn't after the Methodist Church in America and England was formed. Well, they didn't let them preach until the 1950s. But in the early Methodism, women were preachers. And it changed everything, everything in Great Britain, everything. Not only was religious life transformed and vital piety made known and scriptural holiness is proclaimed throughout the land, the society changed. You know I'm a historian. Historians tell us that the violence and the turmoil of the French Revolution was avoided because the Methodists came and changed the hearts and lives of people. Impoverished people gained the skills to lift themselves up out of poverty. And class leaders developed the means to form labor movements that help people get out of the gutters of working in the slums and demand rights that enable them to get a living wage. And real democracy came about in Great Britain. Oh, yeah, there's parliament at the time, but you don't want to hear how people were elected back before all this transpired. Usually there's bribes, but I won't get into that. And John Wesley and the Methodists spoke out against slavery. He called it the vilest form of cruelty under the sun. The, his next to last letter, his next to last letter was written to William Wilberforce. And if you haven't seen the movie Amazing Grace, watch it. It's a great movie. And in the letter, Wesley encourages Wilberforce, who was beginning the fight against the slave trade in the British Empire, to press on, knowing that there'd be great opposition. And for 20 years, William Wilberforce fought against the slave trade. And then in 1807, slave trade was abolished throughout the empire. William Wilberforce, raised by a Methodist governess, influenced by this movement, changed everything. And right, right after Wilberforce died in 1833, Slavery was abolished throughout the whole British Empire. That meant over half the world because Methodists spoke out, you see. Everything was changed. What they were doing was allowing grace to flow through them to change the world, you see. Wesley had a famous saying that there is no holiness unless there's social holiness I don't know if we said this or not, but the word holiness and our understanding of it means love. For be ye holy as I am holy. What is God? God is love. Be love like I am love, what it means. There is no real love in the world until there's love expressed in the world. Just like our text says, love ain't, for God ain't real until you love your neighbor, you love your brother particularly those whom Jesus said are the least, the last, and the lost. 
There's a Charles Wesley hymn, and as I told you all at the beginning of this, there's a lot of Methodist hymns under United Methodist hymn. A lot of them are hard to sing, and the one we're going to sing today, eh, well, we had to change the tune for the service, right, Kathy? Well, anyways, but there's a, a hymn called A Charge to Keep I Have, and it, it goes, there's a line that goes like this, to serve the present age, my calling to fulfill, oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. And what is my master's will? We go back to this prayer that Jesus taught us that we said earlier today that Rosie led so beautifully. You did such a great job, Rosie. Thank you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy what? Will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. What we're trying to do as grace works in our lives, you see, is trying to make this earth as much like heaven as it can be. We're fulfilling our master's will doing such things, you see. So what's this have to do with us? I've given you a history lesson, and hopefully it wasn't that boring, about who we are as, as Methodists. Well, there's, there's a saying that's going to be on the screen uh, in just a second, I think. Is it up there? Yeah, there it is. What a great saying that J John Wesley gave us. I'm going to read it to us, and, and then I'm going to ask us to read it together. Here's what John Wesley, it's attributed to him. You know, there's debate whether he actually said it, but he definitely lived this out. He said this, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. What a wonderful way to live. Let's say that together. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. I see some of y'all writing it down real quickly. You can go online and find it, but it, it, it's, um, it is what we try to live by. Some people are taking pictures of it, Sam, so leave it up there. Thank you. And there's no, no harm putting it, leave it up there. Yeah, we are called to live that way in the here and now as grace works in our lives. It hasn't changed, y'all. We are to do our master's will. We are to bring heaven here to earth right now. Heaven, the reality of heaven in the world right now, working through us, Christ changing us to work in the lives of those around us. As we grow in grace, we are growing our ability to make a difference in this world around us. And it, it starts here in the church. It, it really does, like the early church, where they loved each other, saw that no one was in need, saw that no one uh, had uh, issues with poverty or were hungry. It starts in the church, and the, as I said, the early Methodists did that. You heard me talk about the credit unions and, and making sure that they cared for one another in the class meetings. And we try to do that here. We try to do that here. We try to love each other as best we can. But like those early Methodists, it works best when we're in a smaller group. As I said, they had society meetings. The average society back then had 1,000 folks in it. That's a lot of people. So they broke into these classes and the bands. And in a church like ours, we're a pretty big church. We're not the largest church in America. We're not the largest church around here. But we got a lot of folks here. And it's hard to know everybody. So for us to feel care 
and us to care on an individual basis, on a relational basis, we need to be a part of a smaller group and a smaller fellowship. That's why the Sunday school movement is still alive and well in this church. That's why if you're not in a smaller group, you need to be a part of a Sunday school or a community group or a disciple Bible study or some sort of other group like that or, or a UMW group where people get to know you and you know them so you can be cared for and you can care for others. Let me give you a great example of it. One is something that's just happened today. I know the Pathways class is going to bring Joy Steins in, turning 95 this week. She's been in the nursing home, stays in the nursing home, but they're bringing her in to celebrate her birthday. That's care and love for each other. A few weeks ago, and we got lots of great Sunday school classes. I'm t giving you examples of two. I went to, you know, I go around in the morning, say hi to everybody, uh, drink coffee, and you know, see how they're doing in Sunday school, making sure they're behaving, which most of the time they're not. But, uh, and so I, I went and to the salt and light class, and that class is booming so much that they're sitting on each other's lap. They are. Yeah, they, they're sitting on each other's lap. And, and, and so they had a... Baby shower for Shashir and Gita. Shashir is here today. They had a little baby boy born, Seth, just a few weeks ago. And this class welcomed these new folks to our community, to our country, who are new to the Christian faith, and gave a baby shower. That's what being cared for is. That's what we in the fellowship do. That's why it's important to be part of a smaller group. Now, do we get this right all the time? No. And for that, I apologize, the church apologizes. But if you want to feel cared for, if you're wondering what, you know, I, sometimes I don't feel connected to people in the church. Guess what? Get a part of a smaller group, a fellowship group, a community group, a Sunday school class, Bible study, UMW, men's club. Because that's where care happens. That's where care really happens. And I know this from the reading I've done. Every now and then I'll deliver a good sermon. I'll let y'all judge about this one or not later on. But the real reason people come to church is someone they know invites them. Still the same. I've been in ministry a few years. And that hadn't changed with everything that's going on. And the best, way, best place to do that, one of those groups I just mentioned. That has not changed. That's what keeps people here. Yeah, I know I've got to preach a good sermon every now and then. So you come to see which, time, which Sunday I'll have a good one. Usually it's when Patty's preaching, but <laughs> you're welcome. But the real reason that people come and stay is they feel loved and nurtured and embraced. That's grace flowing through our lives, loving one another. And it's to go out into the world. Our mission statement is to love our community, inviting all to discover life in Christ. That's, that's who we are. And y'all, even though that we have cell phones and cars and airplanes and satellites and all that, our time is very much like the 18th century, very much like 18th century Great Britain. Don't believe me? Ask Elmo. If y'all know who Elmo is, some of y'all may be too, too old to know who Elmo is, but Elmo is a Muppet from Sesame Street. And I tried to find a picture, but they're all copywritten, so I couldn't put them up there. But he's the red guy, talks funny. And he posted on Twitter, which it's called X or whatever it is. Anyways, he posted on Twitter, 
How's everybody doing out there? And it's amazing. It's amazing the response he got. Thousands of people, adults, following Elmo on Twitter. And the overwhelming response is they weren't doing so good. One person said this. He said, I'm in an existential crisis over here, Elmo. Another person said, when I wake up in the morning, I can't wait to go back to sleep because that's how bad it is. Even famous people like Teresa Ziegler, who played Maria on the new West Side Story, beautiful young woman, has everything going for her. She said, Elmo, I'm afraid to tell you how sad I am. Wow. And Cookie Monster responded this way. Me here to talk if you want me to. I will eat me and provide cookies. Hey, what's better than that, you know? Folks, we live in a time of great angst. Things are changing so rapidly, so rapidly. Who knows, you might soon have an AI preacher up here. I doubt that's going to happen. But you get what I'm saying. And people are scared, they're lonely, they're afraid. It's great sadness, but it's a great opportunity to let grace pour through us. A great opportunity to let grace pour through our lives into the world, these broken and hurting people, to invite people to experience the love that many of us know in this place. It's an opportunity for us to go out to find the broken and hurting in the world. And if, when we do go help folks, learn their names and hear their stories. It's my true hope and desire that we will reestablish on a regular basis a feeding ministry in our fellowship hall, our Family Life Center, I mean. Because sitting around the table fellowship, we can invite folks yeah, they're food insecure. We can invite the lonely. We can hear their stories, learn their names. I hope that we can do that as the generosity initiative progresses. Of course, using the beautiful property behind us as an entree to this place. That we become, as the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 15, we are ministers of reconciliation. We're people of grace through whom grace flows into the world to change lives and change the world. And as we do that, as we do that, we grow more confident in this grace in us so that when we face the hard times, when we face our own mortality, we can do so knowing that heaven has come to earth through us and will step from this life in a life eternal with much confidence in the grace that God has poured through us, in us and through us. John Wesley was a remarkable man. It really was. I mean, you, you know that by some of the things I, I told you about. He rode from the moon and back, if we had a horse that could do that, going around all over the British Isles, preaching four to five sermons a day 
about God's love and God's great grace. He was probably, by some people's estimates, the person that earned more money than anybody in 18th century England. You know, you don't think about John Wesley being a wealthy man. His book, Primitive Physique, was one of those popular books in England at that time. It was in 23 different editions printed and sold like wildfire. He did a, a book about the natural world, the wisdom of God in the created world. What a beautiful title. He was someone that had so much popularity amongst the working classes and the poor, and they bought up everything that he wrote. Well, you know, you can go see John Wesley's mansion, right? No. Or the property that he bought? No, not at all. He died with six pounds to his name to tip the pallbearers at his, at his funeral and two silver spoons. What happened to all that wealth? He gave it away. All but six pounds. He gave it away. He uh, followed his own advice in the primitive physique. And he lived to the ripe old age of 88. One of the things that he said is, and this applies to today, uh, don't eat as much as you desire. It's a good word, right? Particularly when the hot dog's around, but I won't get into that. But he could have lived longer. He could have. But at the ripe old age of 88, on a cold February morning in Great Britain, John Wesley went to knock door to door to collect food for the poor. 88 years old. 88 years old, I say that. And while he was out in the cold, he caught pneumonia and uh, he was made to do something that he didn't do very well, to lay down and be still. And there in that bed, uh, death became, came upon him. But as he was fading away from this life to the next, he, he had people whose lives he touched with his life gathered around him. And his last words were, best of all, God is with us. Farewell. Best of all, God is with us. Farewell. And he let grace take him from this life to the next confident that grace had been working in his life to carry him home. Yes, John Wesley died in the way they lived, filled with God's grace, confident in God's grace. And wouldn't we like at our end to be there knowing that grace had worked in us, confident in the fact that because God worked in us, people's lives are changed. And that the reality of heaven isn't a place. It, the reality of heaven is here now, growing in us to make this earth more like heaven so that one day we'll step from one portion of heaven into the other. That's what John Wesley did. But on his deathbed, he asked for his favorite Charles Wesley hymn to be read, a hymn that proclaims the love of God, a, a hymn that proclaims the mercy and grace of God. 
And if anyone can claim that they earned heaven is John Wesley, but in the end, John Wesley relied upon God's grace. We can too. We can too. So you're invited to sing this wonderful hymn that proclaims God's grace. A grace that, yes, saves us. It's a grace that changes us so that we can change the world. May you always be filled with grace. And may grace flow through you to change and transform this world into heaven on earth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us stand and let us sing.